Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Sasha Coca. It's the California Report magazine. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge. And unity is the path forward. In his inauguration speech, our new president, Joe Biden, called for bringing unity to what we all know is a deeply hurt, deeply divided country. Amazing grace, how sweet. Right after the president spoke, country music star Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace. Maybe more than any other popular song, Amazing Grace has become a source of strength and solace for many of our country's presidents when things get tough. It's also inspired a lot of California artists. KQED's arts and culture reporter Chloe Veltman brings us this story about the song's enduring power and about what all of us, including our leaders, can learn from its message. For years, there's been this link between Amazing Grace and U.S. presidents all along the political spectrum. It was played on the bagpipes at Ronald Reagan's funeral. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush have all called the hymn a favourite. And no one can forget that moment in Charleston, South Carolina in June 2015, when Barack Obama took the song to another level. Amazing grace, The then-president broke into song in the middle of his eulogy for state senator and church pastor Clementa Pinckney. Pinckney, along with eight members of his congregation, had been gunned down at their church by a white supremacist earlier that month. It was the latest in a spate of mass shootings motivated by racial hatred. (laughs) 
that moment, the president responded to the massacre by singing the song Amazing Grace is considered one of the most powerful of his years in office. So much so, it inspired a new song. The president came to speak some words and the cameras rolled and the nation heard. Just days after Donald Trump was elected president in November 2016, folk singer Zoe Mulford wrote the president sang Amazing Grace. Many Americans were still reeling from the events in Charleston the previous year. But no words could say what must be said for all the living and the dead. Mulford's song lyrics, where no words could say what must be said for all the living and the dead, reflect back to a president who, in her mind, was able to connect with people in their grief. Folk radio stations across the country picked up the song. One pretty famous folk singer happened to be listening while driving near her home in the San Francisco Bay Area. When I first heard it, I had to pull the car over because I started crying. That's Joan Byers. And she told NPR hearing that song inspired her to make her own version. A young man came to a house of prayer. They did not ask what brought him there. He Here Baez is singing the song on tour in Paris in 2018, where she wrapped up her performance with words about how much she missed President Obama. He wasn't perfect, but he was a president. <laughs> right now we have nothing. And the president sang Amazing Grace kept going. It inspired a California publisher to commission a children's book. And in those final fraught weeks leading up to last November's presidential election, this video hit my inbox. The president came to speak some words And the cameras rolled And the nation heard it features San Francisco's Kronos Quartet and Ethiopian-American vocalist Maklit Hadero. Obama's singing of Amazing Grace in Charleston was a moment, Maklit says, when Americans were faced with a choice. Were we going to choose this path of racist, white supremacist leadership that encourages the darkest parts of American history to wield their guns? Or were we going to choose the possibility of something else? For McLeet, President Obama's decision to sing Amazing Grace spoke to his willingness to be vulnerable. We don't want our presidents to do that. And yet, those can be the moments where we connect as human beings to each other. And so why not have a president that can do that? My president sang amazing. Amazing Grace has travelled far and wide since English clergyman John Newton wrote the lyrics in 1772. It's unclear what, if any, music he used when he invoked it as part of a sermon, but Amazing Grace travelled across the Atlantic where it was enthusiastically picked up by Baptist and Methodist preachers. Eventually the words were paired with the tune we associate them with today.
the song took root in the black church, where it's been sung across generations. Now, Amazing Grace for us, I mean, it is a traditional song, always been a landmark for black America and black church. Margaret Pleasant Duro is a gospel music composer, choir director, and longtime member of the Greater New Bethel Baptist Church in Inglewood. I'm a little bit awestruck when Margaret tells me she was in the audience the day Aretha Franklin recorded her iconic take on Amazing Grace in Los Angeles in 1972. Margaret says it was hard not to sing along with the Queen of Soul. Amazing Grace. We'll just join right in, especially if we know the song, somebody's going to be singing with Aretha Franklin. And Margaret says there's no song quite like Amazing Grace for capturing the black Christian experience. Amazing Grace means something helped us. It was grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us on. Amazing Grace connects deeply with the black church community, but the song has also reached millions of others outside the church because it speaks so eloquently about rebirth and redemption. I'm sober now 43 years, and the amazing thing is that I ever got sober. It's total grace. Folk singer Judy Collins spent part of her childhood in L.A. She released her version of Amazing Grace in 1970 while struggling with alcohol addiction. It's a powerful song which reaches all kinds of people of every race, denomination, religious persuasion, color, character. It doesn't matter who you are. Once you hear Amazing Grace, it sticks. Was blind, but now I see. Many artists with California connections have taken the song in completely new directions, like drag theatre performer Taylor Mack. By the way, Taylor uses the pronoun Judy, as in Judy Garland, not Judy Collins. So in any case, Taylor has unhappy memories of being forced to sing the hymn at Christian Science Church as a kid growing up in Stockton. And everyone sings it kind of, Amazing God, you know, it's not, it wasn't exactly the most soulful rendition. <laughs> and I can't say that I was particularly drawn to the song at all. But Taylor eventually came around to the song. Dressed in teetering platform heels, a fantastical headpiece festooned with tinsel and a glittering hoop dress, Taylor performed a minor key version as the opening number in a mammoth stage production chronicling the history of American popular music. The critically acclaimed show debuted right before the 2016 elections and toured the US through much of the Trump presidency. It became kind of a prayer for grace for the country. It stopped being about um, God 
for me in the Trump years, it became this beautiful way to start the show and say, hey, we're, we're all praying for actual grace now. <laughs> grace so much right now. Between the racially motivated killings, one of the most contentious elections in US history, and the recent assault on the nation's capital, it's been horrific. And the COVID-19 pandemic has further driven people apart. But now I'm found. In fact, Laurie Marie Key, a nurse on the front lines of the health crisis, sang Amazing Grace at an inauguration week memorial service for the more than 400,000 Americans we've lost to the virus. Through civil war, the Great Depression, World War, 9-11, through struggle, sacrifice and setbacks, our better angels have always prevailed. In his inauguration speech, President Joe Biden echoed the core message of Amazing Grace. In each of these moments, enough of us, enough of us have come together to carry all of us forward. And we can do that now. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. In a dramatic moment towards the end of his rendition of Amazing Grace, country music star Garth Brooks reinforced the president's call for unity. I can ask you to sing this last verse with me. Not just the people here, but the people at home. At work as one, united. Amazing. Of course, all of us singing Amazing Grace together won't solve this country's problems, but maybe it's a good place to start. Was blind, but now I For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. I just think she represents not the new America, she represents the present America. The ugly cry came out in full effect. Like I saw when I first saw her and Uncle Dougie and I just, I lost it. It's hard to describe, but it was overwhelming and it was exciting and it was historic. Like. It just filled my heart with so much joy. And like we Woo! went from Mike Pence to Kamala Harris, like that's such an upgrade. It was just, <laughs> it was just so amazing to see. That was Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, San Francisco Mayor London Breed, as well as Maureen Loftus, who's the 16-year-old daughter of longtime Harris advisor Susie Loftus. 
They all talked to my colleague Marisa Lagos, who's a correspondent with the Politics and Government Desk at KQED, where we produce the California Report. Hey, Marisa, what was it like talking to all those folks, seeing somebody they know take the oath as vice president? It was really powerful. And I think, you know, you hear in those clips um, for, you know, these are Democrats, so they're relieved that Trump's out of office, but they're also so excited to see somebody they know, what they have this personal connection with, but also who reflects so much of the state and this nation with her own personal story and heritage. So, Marisa, we should probably tell our audience that you and I are hatching something. We've got a project that we're working on looking at Kamala Harris as an important lens on identity, race, and history here in California. That's right. We're going to be reporting this out in the coming months. And the idea is to really take a look at what her achievement means, not just for Kamala Harris, but for so many Americans who really see themselves in her. And also what it says about our nation at this time of both deep divisions and for some a newfound hope. Juana, Kamala is coming out. Kamala! We wanted to give you a taste of our upcoming series this inauguration week by introducing you to a family we're going to be following in this series. We got to listen in as the Sidibe Singh family of San Francisco watched the inauguration on Wednesday. I want to be there right now. I mean, it's snowing. Who wouldn't? Uh, Spoken like a true Bay Area kid wanting to go toward the freezing cold weather. Um, But, you know, like a lot of us with kids, these this family was vacuuming up granola, changing diapers while trying to watch this historic moment this week. They have two daughters, and they actually have pretty similar heritage to Kamala Harris. Vice President Kamala Harris. My name is Sumaya, and I'm six years old. Kamala Harris is black and Indian. She was awesome because it felt great to have another black and Asian person. I'm mixed, and I'm proud of it. Next president of the United You're crying. States, Joseph A little bit. Because I'm happy. So you're hearing there the mom of the family, Jyoti Singh. She is the daughter of Punjabi immigrants from India. And I actually know Jyoti from years back when she and I both took a Hindi class at UC Berkeley. I got back in touch with her for this story, and I learned a lot more about her. So where I grew up, uh, it was a suburb of Atlanta, Cobb County, which is now famous for being a place where Democrats were able to win. Um, when I was growing up, it was not like that at all. Um, it's a, it was a very white suburb. There were a lot of Confederate flags, maybe still are, um, and uh, it was not an easy place to be South Asian uh, growing up. And we also got to talk to her husband, who had a very different experience growing up. My name is Bongo Sidibe, and I'm uh, originally from Guinea, West Africa. And I'm a father of two beautiful mixed kids, which are blazing. I call them like that. <laughs> Just like our vice president. So help me God. So help me God. The little one is uh, tiny, but Sumaya definitely she got it. Because when she watched Kamala Harris on TV, like she's so happy that there's someone over there that look like her. And we keep telling her, you know, she's just like you. She's a black and an Indian. 
And that, it gives the little ones more hope, you know, like that. They can do something like that. That is a big step, like big, big step. Jyoti and Bongo felt like this was a big emotional moment for them and many other people who see themselves reflected in Kamala Harris. But they actually also have some conflicting feelings, like many progressives. Kamala Harris was part of law enforcement. She was a district attorney and attorney general of California before going on to the Senate. And that part of her history brings up some different feelings for Jyoti. You know, I find her role in that really problematic. And, you know, she she was responsible for a lot of people going to jail. At the same time, I know representation is important. I didn't even have any teachers who look like me when I was growing up, much less a vice president. So there's a lot of weight on Kamala Harris's shoulders. I mean, there is so much work to be done here in the United States when it comes to so many issues, including addressing issues of race within communities of color. You know, South Asians really want to claim her now. And so I'm hopeful that it will bring up a lot more conversations in South Asian communities around anti-Black racism. I really hope that, you know, South Asians are forced to reflect on that more and to do something about uh, anti-Black racism in South Asian communities. And six-year-old Sumaya, she's got her own list of priorities for Kamala Harris to tackle. Fix coronavirus and racism because she's Black and Asian. And I think Maybe she knows more about racism. So, you know, like all of us, Jyoti and Bongo have had their lives completely upended by this pandemic. They're both artists, and in normal times, they'd be bringing their music and dance to schools to teach. They'd be conducting live performances. But we want to give you a taste of that art, even if they can't be doing it publicly, because they really bring together their own cultural traditions within that music. And we'll have more of Jyoti and Bongo's story for you as part of an episode that Marisa and I are doing about how mixed-race Californians see themselves in Kamala. If you want to be part of that episode and tell us about your experience being mixed, give us a call at 415-636-9801. That's 415-636-9801. Or you can drop us a note at calreport at kqed.org. But for now, we want to leave you with a song, Meri Jan. It features bongos, Ghanaian music, with singer Ishmeet Narula bringing us the Punjabi lyrics. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn. One of the highlights of the inauguration for a lot of us was hearing from youth poet laureate Amanda Gorman, who I'm proud to say grew up in the same neighborhood of LA that I did. Using language to empower people is something she learned from her mom, who's a middle school teacher in Watts. Amanda wrote about her in a 2017 poem called In This Place, an American Lyric. There's a poem in Los Angeles, yawning wide as the Pacific tide, where a single mother swelters, 
in a windowless classroom, teaching black and brown students in Watts to spell out their thoughts so her daughter might write this poem for you. Well, this week, we're going to head to another school in Watts, where students are still reeling from the violent insurrection at the Capitol. KQED's education reporter Vanessa Rancaño tells us how the school has been looking for ways to empower students to take on more of a leadership role in bringing their whole school community together. Morning after a mob stormed the Capitol, Locke College Preparatory Academy Principal of Academics Blaine Watson was stressing. I was up all night thinking about uh, the responsibility. Between COVID and George Floyd's killing, he knew his mostly Black and Latino students were already raw. A lot of us make the mistake of just saying, all right, kids, you know, this is what happened, and let's hear your thoughts. But we have to really be responsible about the messaging around race and how important or unimportant people of color are facing our government. He wanted to listen, but not just that. He knew students and teachers could best identify their own needs in the moment and find ways to meet them. He wanted to support them in doing that. So together, they're planning a series of virtual community town halls. They held the first one on the day before the inauguration. Welcome to our first, our very first series of panel discussions about the things that are going on in our nation, in our community. Student body president Marvion Mabon greeted the 60 or so people in the Zoom conference, a mix of students, parents, and staff. We want you to use your voices. Our school and our community is a community that we hear too often is underheard and underrepresented. And this will be that platform to now represent and make sure our voices are heard. It was a place for students to open up about how they'd been feeling since the insurrection. What happened at that Capitol is an insult. That was horrid. That struck all of us in a way that we never thought. It was horrible. I was in shock. And as young kids, we had to grow up with this. 17-year-old Angelica Barrera is student body vice president. So thank you for helping us lead young students like us to be activists, to fight racial injustice. This was also a chance for teachers to give students context. History teacher Alette Kendrick described the insurrection as part of a pattern of white supremacist violence throughout American history. But Kendrick also emphasized this history provides lessons about how to move forward after the violence. We've seen in our country before, and we've survived it in our country before as well. Okay, And most importantly, these things happen as a backlash, as a negative response to a lot of positive changes and progress that's actually happening in our country. Kendrick and the students have talked about connecting this moment to Watts' own history of civil unrest and how it shaped the community. This very high school was built in response to the Watts riots. Students Marvion and Angelica then called their classmates to action. So get out there and get involved. Don't be scared. Speak your mind. Speak up. Principal Blaine Watson closed by telling the student leaders how proud he was. I'm thankful for you and all the other students who are who are participants today. The call has been made. You, you just got to answer it. All right. One lock, one love. We love you, Lock High School. And let's get ready for this inauguration tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a day you'll never forget. 
After the attack in D.C., one of Watson's biggest fears was that for students who already had reason to distrust their government, seeing Confederate flags flying in the Capitol and police standing by and taking selfies would lead them to lose all faith in their country. The next day, as Marvion watched the newly sworn-in President Joe Biden address the nation, he said he was holding his breath. I was like, please, please, please do not cut the strings and said there was an emergency, um, there was a shooting. But seeing Kamala Harris on stage made him feel something else, a sense of possibility. When I saw Barack Obama and Michelle Obama come out as a power couple, we had the first black senator who was there from Georgia. It was just so much hope and so much inspiration in that one frame. This is the real America. At least for now, this is the country he's choosing to believe in. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Maleon is our senior editor. Our director is Amanda Font. Our engineer is Brendan Willard. Hector Arzate is our intern. And I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.